All right, today's scripture reading is from Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, which can be found on page 2, page 2 of your pew Bibles. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 15. Verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he had put, man, put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pison. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and the onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Esher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. May God bless the reading of his word. So as I've already explained, we'll be three or four sermons in a row now, and then recurringly over the course of the next several years, we'll be looking at, reflecting on, How can we serve God and honor God, worship God, not just one day a week, but the other five or six days a week as well? How can we particularly use our vocations to serve God or to serve others? Now, in this first sermon series, what I want to lay is a a basic, simple, uh, conceptual framework for what we're doing together. Why should we use our vocations? How can we use our vocations to serve God, to serve others? How can we use them to advance the kingdom of God? And we start in Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2 particularly, or this whole series will be Genesis 1, we'll begin with Genesis 1 to 3. We start in Genesis because you know, this is not just the f- first book of the Bible. Genesis 1 to 3 is laying a foundation for everything that's to come. Genesis 1 to 3 is setting out the underlying thinking, the underlying theology for the whole of the Old Testament and new. It's providing what we would call a worldview. What is, who are we and where are we? You know, who is God? What has he done? How does that impact who we are and what we do? Genesis 1 to 3 is not simply trying to describe creation. It's setting up an entire worldview so that we can understand who we are, where we are, 
and what we're meant to do. So turn with me to Genesis. We'll actually start just a few verses earlier at Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so you're looking at the first couple of pages. Really easy to find. Genesis chapter 2. What I really want to focus on this morning is three ideas. From Genesis 2, what we learn is three things. We learn, first of all, that God works. And we can't take this for granted. The Old Testament author, the author of the book of Genesis, is really trying to make a special point of this. That God works. Secondly, we look at when God works. And thirdly, we look at how God works. Because it's setting out a worldview. Genesis is telling us that God works, when God works, and how God works, because God becomes a pattern for us. When we see that God works, it has implications for how we live. When we see when God works, that has implications for how we live and work. And we see how God works, that has special implications for how we work. So we begin Genesis chapter 2. We'll begin with verses 1 to 3. Verse 2. Follow along as I read. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. We notice, first of all, from this text, what may seem obvious to us, but was not obvious to them, either in the Old Testament or in the New. And the author makes a special point of this. His first point is that God works. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. On the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. He rested from all the work of creating he had done. Three times, the author uses the same word. But what's especially significant about it is, this is the same word the Old Testament uses to to describe what we do when we're on the job. God works, we work. Now, this was a surprise in that time. You know, the Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament, was written back against the background of Babylonian beliefs, a Babylonian culture, a wider culture. And in that culture, gods did not work. In fact, in that culture, gods created human beings precisely so that the gods wouldn't have to work. Uh, the gods didn't want to bother with work, something so mundane and boring. So they created human beings to be their servants. And it was the role of the human beings to produce food and give it to the gods. So the gods were the leisure class, the wealthy, the powerful. And they hired lackeys, like many countries of the world. The wealthy don't work. The sign that you're prosperous is you, you have hands without calluses. You pay other people to work for you. You have house help. You have workers who work in your factories. You have a chauffeur to drive your car. Many countries of the world still live like this, where it's the underclass, the poor people who work, and the rich people just make all the money. And that's the Babylonian concept of the gods. And notice what happens, because this is worldview literature. If you conceive of your gods as rich and powerful and not working, 
then how do you conceive of yourself? If I'm rich, if I'm powerful, then I don't work. Other people work. My slaves work. My servants work. The poor people work. But if we conceive of our gods, the greater a God is, the less work he does. The greater a God is, the more he exploits other people, then inevitably, as human beings, we'll use the opportunities we have to exploit other people. And that was the Old Testament background that Genesis is writing against. And refuting that background, this is not the true God. This is not how God lives. And this is not how we live. Now, New Testament times was much the same. In the Greco-Roman world, it was still the leisure class, the wealthy, the people with the soft hands. They would socialize most of the day. They'd have big feasts at night. It was only the poor people or the slaves. One-third of ancient Rome would have been comprised of slaves. It was the slaves who worked and did physical labor. It was the poor people who worked. And then they would be exploited. They'd work for minimal wage. And then they would give the proceeds. And the wealthy would then have all the time for leisure, for philosophy, uh, for, to discuss philosophy, to eat together in, in fancy feasts. And they constructed gods that were like that. If any of you have studied in school, at least in my day, we studied Greco-Roman mythology a bit. And you notice the gods are, are never really engaged in heavy exertion or activity. That's why human beings exist. Uh, the gods are engaged in mischief, in jealousy, in rivalry, in, in enjoying uh, the fruits of other people's labor. They constructed a god, the gods, who were lazy and self-indulgent so that the wealthy could then be lazy and self-indulgent. Now, in the first century, it was different among the Jews. Jewish rabbis typically had a career. Well, a blue collar. They were tradesmen. So Jesus was a carpenter. And you remember that the Apostle Paul, while trained as a rabbi, was also a leather worker, a tent maker. And when Paul was out preaching the gospel and didn't have enough money, he'd go back to tent making. And you can see in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that you know, Paul's working with his hands. And, and this was not a Greek or Roman thing to do. Only poor people, only working class, only not smart people work with their hands. So when Paul's preaching the gospel and working with his hands, they're offended. Paul must not be a very good teacher if he's not getting paid. If he has to work for a living, he must not be very good about it. But Paul's coming from a Jewish background, from an Old Testament background, from, the, from a Genesis chapter 2 background. And what background is that, you see? By the seventh day, God had finished. The, God has been doing work for six days. On the seventh day, he rests from his work, but for the first six days, he's been working. He's been working. He's been working, the text says. Why? This is worldview literature. If our great and mighty God works, then what it tells us is that we too work. The most important thing, the place where we begin is this. Work is not a necessary evil. Sometimes you may feel like you work for a pointy-haired boss. Or sometimes you feel like your daily work may be like an episode of The Office. 
But this is a secular or pagan concept of work. This is not a biblical concept of work. Uh, the Bible begins, you know, look, look at it this way. Right? Genesis 1 to 3 is going to set out the most important things for us to know. God created. It tells us God's creative activity. It tells us something about us. Isn't it astounding that one of the most important things for us to know is not solely about God's holiness, not solely about God's omnipotence and his power, not solely about God's omniscience and his wisdom. One of the most important things for us to know from a biblical perspective is this. One of the priorities that this author wants to emphasize is God works. It's essential to who he is. He is a God who is not lazy, not self-indulgent, not exploitive. God is a God who works. Genesis is telling us this is one of the most important things for us to know, not just about God, but about ourselves. God has made us in his image. We work because we need money. We work because we want to support our kids. We work because we want to have a comfortable life. But no, that's not the fundamental reason why we work. The fundamental reason why we work is because God works. And in his image, he created us to work. Now, we'll see next week that work is not always as God had intended it. It's not always as God had created it. But here's the place where Genesis begins is that work is a rightful part, not just of how we spend our time. It's not just that we have to work five or six days a week so that we have money to spend on the weekend or on vacation. That's not the point. We work because this is who we are. This is part of our identity. God has created us to be productive, to be engaged in activity that helps other people. In an economy like this, not many of us have had the experience, but a few of us had, have had the experience of being laid off and being unemployed for a while. I don't know. Well, there are a few things, I suppose, but there's not very many things that are harder than being unemployed, looking for a job, and being frustrated and discouraged. What this text tells us is that we are discouraged when we're unemployed because God made us to work. That discouragement is a confirmation of God's call in our life, how God created us. We're unemployed. You know, when we're unemployed, it's not like, oh, great, I got all this spare time. Now I can go hunting and fishing and playing computer games all day. The point of unemployment is, yeah, this is not our natural condition. This is not how God lives, unemployment. It's not how he calls us to live. Now, none of you have any thought of this yet, or maybe only a f very few of you have any thought of this yet. But Genesis 2 also explains why retirement is so disconcerting. Retirement is not our natural condition. Retirement is a little odd. You have to work until you're no longer healthy enough to do much other than, you know, hang around. But, but retirement itself is not meant to be a meaningful condition for us. It's not how God created us. Golfing every morning, dancing every evening. God created us for productive activity. 
this is how he's wired. This is how he's wired us. And the great joy that that brings us means, what it tells us is this, is that there's hope. We don't have to live for the weekend. God doesn't call us to live for those two weeks or three weeks a year that we get to go to Europe or, or get to go to the Bahamas or Ruben now. God calls us to be productive workers. God calls us to engage in labor. And we don't worship God and serve God and love God just for a few hours on a Sunday morning. This is how we honor God. This is how we serve God. Five days a week, six days a week, as we work, we serve him. Any moral vocation, obviously, gambling, prostitution, drug dealing, there's a few things we want to exclude, you know, gangsterism. There's a few things we'd exclude. Not that many of you are very fond of those activities anyway, I think. But if you are fond of those activities, feel free to see me after the service. <laughs> Any moral activity is a way we serve God. Remember, we're Protestants, and one of the key Discoveries, rediscoveries by Martin Luther, the first forerunner of the Protestants, was this. That every honest profession is a vocation. It's not just clergy who have a special calling from God. We are all called by God to serve him with how we spend our careers. And that's the first thing we learn from this text. That God works, and he is our role model, so we work. The second thing we can learn from this text is something about the rhythm of work, when God works. So notice verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. Notice the rhythms the timing. Notice when God works. You know, we see in Genesis chapter 1, we see all of these statements about God working. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 3, let there be light, and there was light on the first day. And let there be a vault between, let's separate the water and the earth below and the waters from above and there was the second day and then God works on the third day let the water under the sky be gathered in one place the dry ground be gathered in another there was evening and morning the third day uh, the fourth day let there be lights in the vault of the sky and God works on the fourth day in verse 20 let the water team with living creatures and God fills the water with, anim with fish and there was evening and morning the fifth day let the land produce living creatures. And God created animals and God created plants and God created human beings. And it was the sixth day. God works six days. And then after that, his work was complete. And on the seventh day, he rested. And three times, Genesis chapter 2 underscores, God rested. Verse 2, God had finished his work. Verse 2b, God rested from all his work. Verse 3, he rested from the work of creating that he had done. So the text is determined to point out, not only are we created for work, but there's limits to that work that we're created for. Because we're not created solely for work. 
We work because that's who we are. That's our identity. But that's not the sum total of who we are. And so God has decreed as by his own example that we work during the day and we rest at night. And after six days of work, there's a day of rest. God decrees the rhythms of his own work and models for us the rhythms of our work. We work because we live. But we don't live to work. God puts constraints. There's a time to work and there's a time to rest. There's a time to earn money and there's a time to say, no, this is enough money. And notice what God says about that day, that seventh day. Verse 3. God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Almost everywhere in scripture, when you see God blessed, what God blesses is productivity. God blesses a family and they have kids. God blesses a, a vocation or a job and they're productive at their work. But one day a week here, he says this. Here's my blessing. And he blesses the time when they do nothing. God blesses our quiet times as much as he blesses our work. And so in this, God again models for us concretely how we should live. Our laziness is not a holy lifestyle. God works six days a week. He calls us to work five or six days a week. There is an implicit exhortation against laziness here. An explicit exhortation in favor of productivity. But at the same time, God urges us against workaholism. I'm sure you're aware that we live in a that technology has really complicated our lives. We live in a difficult time because of technology. And it actually complicates our lives in both directions. Because technology can encourage us to be lazy. Facebook, Twitter, while we're at work. Technology can also encourage us to be workaholics. When you last took a vacation, or on your last day off, How many times did you check your email? Did you bring your computer? I was recently out of the country for three days, and I was pleased and intentional about not bringing my computer with me. And any of you that emailed me got that annoying message that I'm out of the country and I can't, you know, whatever. I could have been on the grid if I wanted to. But, you know, here's the thing. Technology will never leave us alone. We always have that cell phone. We always have that email connection. We always have that laptop or that whatever iPod or iPad or whatever you call these things now. We can always be harassed. We can always waste time at work and be harassed when we're on vacation. The text invites us, calls us to be like God, to work when we're at work, but then to be free from harassment where we're off work. And so these are the first two things the text teaches us. We work because it's part of who we are. And we will never be moderately satisfied unless we're productively engaged. We can't live with leisure constantly. At the same time, there's limits. God puts down limits on how much we should work. 
It should be a big part of our lives, but not the entirety. Now, there's a third point this text would tell us about our work, and that's how God works. And this is really important because Christians get a really bad rap for how we work, in one respect at least. Notice how does God work. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. Chapter 1, verse 3. God creates. Chapter 1, verse 6. God creates. The third day, God creates. The fourth day, God creates. The fifth day, God creates. The sixth day, God creates. What does God do when he works? What could be more obvious? God creates. He doesn't destroy. He doesn't abuse. He doesn't exploit. He creates and he provides. And take a look at chapter 1, verses 29 to 30. What does God do when he creates? Chapter 1, verse 29. God says to the human beings, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit. God creates when he works. God provides when he works. How does God work? The first day he creates and he says, oh, it's good. And the second day he creates and, oh, this is good. And the, and the third day he creates, this is good. Six times we're told, this is good. And the seventh time we're told, this is very good. How does God work? He creates. He provides. He does good things. He doesn't destroy. He doesn't exploit. He doesn't blow up, blow things up. He doesn't decimate. He doesn't inflict harm. He creates. He builds things. He provides for people. He does good. So how are we to work? Christians get a bad rap, or the Bible gets a bad rap, because chapter 1 of Genesis, verses 28 to 29, 28 says this, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and... Subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky. And so some people who are particularly concerned about our environment will say, you see, this Bible is harmful. See what it tells us to do? It tells us to subdue the earth. It tells us to rule over the earth. The Bible permits us to destroy the earth, to harm the earth, to abuse the earth, to exploit other people. No, it doesn't. Uh, Let's admit that many Christians have participated in the exploitation of our earth and the exploitation of other people on our earth. But let's admit it that they did so as sin, not in honor of God. Uh, God never permits us to exploit our environment. The text never talks about inviting us to do that or exploiting other people and abusing them. Notice, God is our pattern for how we work. God creates, God provides, God does good. And he calls us to create, to provide, to do good. He doesn't permit us to abuse each other or our environment. Why does the text tell us to subdue the earth? What does it mean when it tells us to subdue the earth? People get this real wrong. You see, what happened was, The Industrial Revolution brought us into a new era. Now, post-Industrial Revolution is often called the era of modernity. 
Now, modernity is the idea that as human beings, we no longer have to be subject to the vagaries of nature. As human beings, we can control nature. We can control our world. And so what you've got is people using technology, industrial revolution and subsequent technology, to control the world rather than to live in harmony with the world. This is not Christians who did this because they're Christians. It's not the Bible that permits this. It's technology and modernity. It's, it's a mentality that existed and many Christians were co-opted into it, but it was never imagined in Scripture. What does Scripture call us to do? Scripture calls us to subdue the earth. What does that mean? Again, we model our conduct on God's. See, it was God who first subdued the earth. The whole idea of Genesis 1 is that the earth was formless, void, and chaotic. No system, no control, no harmony. And God stepped into that. He subdued that chaos, and he brought order, and he brought harmony. And so when Scripture tells us to subdue, it's not telling us to abuse. It's not telling us to strip mine. It's not telling us that we can engage in mountaintop removal to get at coal and just just blow up the mountain. So where there was a mountain, now there's just flat land and massive amounts of pollution. That's not what Scripture means, because that's not how God acted. When God subdued, he brought order and harmony into chaos. And he invites us to do the same. And when the text tells us to rule, it reminds us that, first of all, God ruled. And what did God do when he ruled? He created. He provided. He did good things. And when the scriptures tell us to rule, what it tells us is to exercise our rule as God's vice regent. We're God's assistant directors. We're we're the assistant CEO and God's the CEO. And we work like he works. And we care for people. And we care for our environment. We provide for them. You know, there's this big debate about fracking now to get more energy. So we have more energy to burn, so we can keep our homes warmer, so we have more energy to drive our cars everywhere we want to go at any time. You know, this whole thing about fracking, and they they pour this under pressure, they pour water deep down, or contaminants, water with chemicals deep down into the ground in order to get more oil out of the ground, out of the shale, with who knows what horrendous side effects may come from that. God is not calling us to abuse our environment. God does not endorse massive destruction. God calls us to bring order into chaos and to care for people. You know, this week we've heard about this fire in a factory in Bangladesh, or not a fire, a, uh, the collapse of a, fi- of a factory in Bangladesh. Time magazine made an interesting point about it. And I quote, In order for consumers in developed economies, rich people like us, to enjoy tasteful clothes at affordable prices, low-paid workers in countries like Bangladesh must toil in dangerous, sometimes lethal conditions. On average, these workers earn $37 a month working 15-hour shifts. And there have been a number of factory collapses, so they do all this at the risk of their lives. The author says at the end, There is no denying that we and the retailers we buy from all share a moral responsibility in these tragedies. This is not how God works. 
God creates. He provides. He does good. And when he subdues, he brings order into chaos. And when he rules, he does so with benevolence, not with abuse. And he calls us that we might work this way as well. So this is where we start. As we think about working, these are the three ideas we start with from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That God works. He brings dignity to our work because he works. We don't worship God just on a Sunday. We worship and serve God five, six days a week. Not just when we sing and listen to a sermon, but when we work as doctors or engineers or lawyers or accountants or social service staff. God works and brings dignity and calling to our work. And when God works, he works hard when it's time for work. And he takes time off between the work. And thirdly, we learn how God works. That he's benevolent, beneficent, not destructive. This is where we begin. And as we conceptualize our lives, we honor God, not just today, but tomorrow through Friday. We honor God as we imitate his character. Let's pray together. Father, you have brought meaning not just to our relationship with you, but to our relationship with our work and our colleagues. We thank you, Father, that you don't call us just to be part of your life on a Sunday, but that you're part of our lives on a Monday through Saturday. May we honor you not just with the songs we sing, and the sermons we preach, but with how we live Monday through Friday and Saturday. We ask for your presence with us as we serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.